John Keg is a philosophy professor who published a book a few years ago with the intriguing title, How William James Can Save Your Life. How many of you have spent much time with William James? I see just a few hands. All right. So this book, it's not my favorite book on James, but I, I do think that he's on to something with that title. William James was born in 1842, and he died in 1910. He's been called the father of American philosophy and the father of American psychology. Uh, he's remembered for coining terms like stream of consciousness, dissociation, timeline, pluralism, and the multiverse. So if you've enjoyed any of those recent Marvel movies in the multiverse, James would say, you're welcome. Uh, William James's brother was the famous novelist Henry James, and although the James family was not Unitarian, they were often Unitarian adjacent. Henry James's fiction frequently included Unitarian characters, and their sister Alice published her diaries uh, that of, and said that of the prevailing religions of the day, Unitarianism, if, if their family were anything, that would be the closest fit. Here's one specific quote from Alice that I think I think she mostly intended as a compliment, but you can be the judge. She said, when mother and father died, we fell back upon the uncompromising and amorphous Unitarian shepherd for whom no sheep has too varied a fleece. The family was also close to many prominent Unitarians, including Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and Henry David Thoreau. And William James's godfather was none other than Ralph Waldo Emerson, who frequently spent the night at the James's home. What I want to particularly draw your attention to is that William James's perhaps most enduring influence is a book he published in 1902 that's titled The Varieties of Religious Experience. His innovation was to challenge the field of religious studies, to focus less on the history of ancient religion and more on people's present-day religious experience. And also that, like, all that stuff that did or didn't happen a long time ago, he's like, it either probably did or didn't happen based on if you can experience it now. It wasn't like some magic time back then. We're still, like, the same humans. Uh, James called for a move from secondhand religion, what other people tell you is true, to firsthand religion. What do you know is true? Because it has happened to you. Uh, our UU First Source calls this direct experience of transcending mystery and wonder. We inherit that source most directly from our transcendentalist forebears, like James's godfather, Emerson. And to orient you um, briefly to the journey that I'd like to invite us to go on this morning, starting with James's paradigm-shifting book, I want to briefly reach back to our UU heritage, because all of this is really deeply tied to our UU history. And then I want to um, reach forward to connect us to, to today, because one of the places doing the most exciting work, extending William James's work into the future, happens to be just about an hour from here in Baltimore at the John Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. First, let's briefly start with James's godfather, Ralph Waldo Emerson. So Emerson said regarding the, so Emerson, before he took on the lecture circuit, was a Unitarian minister, right? Uh, there's a lot to say about that, but uh, he said of the Unitarian of his day, this is corpse cold. 
It was, it was just too hyper-rational and all up in their head. And in 1836, he wrote an essay that is very much worth revisiting titled Nature. And that book dropped like a bomb in our tradition and led to what is known as the Transcendentalist Revolt within Unitarianism. Again, a lot to say about that, but more specifically, I want to skip ahead two years to 1836. This is a chapel at Harvard Divinity School, and in 1838, Emerson was invited to deliver the sermon at the graduation of that year's class in 1838 of Harvard Divinity School graduates. His formal title of that, and this Divinity School address, also very much worth rereading, it was actually titled, Acquaint Thyself at First Hand with deity. So notice how it's not a coincidence that his godson, William James, did, the, you know, did this big focus on first-hand religion, not second-hand religion. This sermon was so controversial that for decades, Emerson was persona non grata at Harvard Divinity School and was uh, you know, not invited um, back. Emerson, though, had the last laugh. This chapel that he was disinvited from is now called the Emerson Chapel. Uh, <laughs> His godson, James, was a Harvard professor, and there is now an endowed professorship called the Ralph Waldo Emerson Unitarian Universalist Senior Lecturer at Harvard Divinity School. So connecting back to uh, William James, here's a quote from the Varieties of Religious Experience in which you can hear him expanding upon his godfather's call to acquaint thyself at first hand with deity. James wrote, churches so often live secondhand upon tradition, what did or didn't happen a long time ago, right? They won't stop talking about it. But the founders of every church, they owed their power originally to the fact of their direct personal communion with the divine. He's like, stop talking about Moses in the burning bush. He's like, what burning bushes have you seen lately? Like, he's like, that's what I want to know about. I propose, he said, to ignore the institutional branch of religion entirely. This was not popular. Uh, To say nothing of the ecclesial organization, to consider as little as possible systematic theology and the ideas about the gods themselves. I want to confine myself to personal religion, pure and simple, what people know firsthand for themselves. In our current age, in which an increasing number of people identify as spiritual but not religious, this may seem pretty commonplace. In James's day, this was controversial stuff. And people were hungry for this approach. In the first year alone, James cleared $10,000 after expenses on this book. That's the equivalent of more than $300,000 today. He received more letters in response to this book than all his other books combined, and it has remained continuously in print for more than a century. Although there's a lot to say about William James, I don't want to get lost in the history and fail to connect his legacy to the cutting-edge research being done today that he and the Transcendentalists and many others have helped inspire. To that end, I want to share with you some highlights from a very interesting book published recently by Oxford University Press that's titled, you know, so James wrote The Varieties of Religious Experience. This is The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, 21st Century Research and Perspectives that is explicitly extending and updating James for today. This book is co-authored by David Yaden, a professor at Johns Hopkins University Medical School, uh, whose research is focused on the potential of psychedelics to create altered states of consciousness and how they can have positive long-term impacts, as well as by Andrew Newberg, who's a professor of integrative uh, medicine at Thomas Johnson University in Philadelphia. So what do we mean when we talk about what William James called 
um, religious experience, what uh, our UU First Source calls direct experience, and what many researchers today call spiritual experiences. As researchers at Johns Hopkins have started collecting data, building again on what James started a century, more than a century ago, here's a chart showing the frequency with which people use certain words to describe these sorts of experiences. By far the most common term is spiritual. Uh, have you ever heard the term that like religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell and spirituality is for people who have been through hell? <laughs> yeah, so that, I think that's part of it. Uh, paranormal and religious are also somewhat frequently used. Less common synonyms include awe, transcendence, uh, mystical, self-transcendent, peak, ecstatic, numinous for those who are fancy. As uh, Hopkins researchers have sought to compare and classify these experiences, they've created something they call the Mystical Experiences Questionnaire, in which they have a scale and you rate like your experience on each of these four lines. Uh, and that, that are, these are four factors that can, tend to be cross-culturally common uh, for these sorts of experiences. So unity, an experience of oneness with reality. Ecstasy, a feeling of heightened positive mood. Timelessness, a dropping away of your usual sense of space and time. And ineffability, even as people try to language this stuff, there's ultimately a sense that it can't fully be described adequately in mere words. It may also help to briefly share three representative examples. There's so much to talk about here, but I'll give you just three attempts to describe the ultimately ineffable. Let's start with a report from William James's uh, the, uh, the Varieties of Religious Experience. The experiencer said, quote, I felt myself at one with the grass, the trees, the birds, insects, everything in nature. That's the unity part, right? I exalted that's the ecstasy part. I exalted in the mere fact of existence and being a part of it all. I knew so well the satisfaction of losing self. That's that loss of normal sense of space and time and a perception of supreme power and love. Be sure not to miss that last part about a perception of supreme power and love. This person was raised in a Christian tradition and brought that lens to interpret it through their experience, through a theistic uh, theological lens of being absorbed in the presence of God. But keeping that in mind, let's consider a second experience, this time from Alan Watts. He's a 20th century popularizer of Eastern religious traditions. Watts had a similar experience to this one, but he interpreted it more through a Buddhist perspective, because that was his background. That was, these experiences are kind of co-constructed from what we bring to them. He said, quote, I lost the boundary of my physical body. That's that loss of space and time. I had my skin, of course, but I felt like I was at the center of the cosmos. That's that unity piece. I spoke, but my words had lost their meaning. That, that's the ineffability piece. Now, ecstasy is not explicit in Watts's short quote, but we know that he felt it because he published a whole book about it later titled The Joyous Cosmology, Adventures in the Chemistry of Consciousness. Here's one more um, point of comparison from Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, who had a similar experience, but she interprets the same sort of experience, but from a secular, scientific perspective. She's a Harvard neuroscientist. She said, I could no longer discern the physical boundaries of where I began and where I ended. I sensed the composition of my being as being fluid rather than solid. 
I no longer perceive myself as a whole object separate from everything else. Again, there's that loss of space and time and a sense of unity. Uh, have, have you seen her TED Talk, My Stroke of Insight? Uh, really, really worth 20 minutes of your time at some point. Really, really interesting. She's a Harvard neuroscientist who had a stroke that triggered a mystical experience. So she brings all of this neuroscientific training to interpreting. William James noted similar interpretive divergences, you know, uh, of how different people interpret the same sorts of experiences in his own day. And his caution was to hold metaphysical speculation lightly uh, about what these larger, what larger reality spiritual experiences may or may not reveal. For the most part, I think he thought rightly, that's just ultimately above our pay grade. Instead, he encouraged us not to miss that these experiences can have profound and life-changing ramifications regardless of whether we can be certain about their ultimate meaning and origin. Ultimately, as a philosophical pragmatist, and this goes back to him being the sort of father of American philosophy, uh, he used to say it is often wiser to focus more, less on the roots, less on the roots, the origin of, relig- of spiritual experiences, less on the roots and more on the fruits. Uh, more on the outcomes of how these experiences do or do not result in long-term changes. That being said, it may be the case, however, that spiritual experiences do give us some sort of direct existential experience that our ego, our sense of self, is much more illusory than we often take it to be. That the nature of reality is similar to what our UU Seventh Principle calls the interdependent web of all existence. No less a thinker than Einstein said that he sort of saw the implications of quantum physics to be that we humans experience ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings as separated from the rest. But he said, it seems to be that is that separateness is actually a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. So here's an attempt by researchers at Hopkins to begin to graph some of what Emerson and James and spiritual teachers throughout the ages describe about what may be a more accurate um, nature of consciousness. So starting on this left side uh, in normal waking consciousness, most of us had, I guess your left is over there. Uh, Starting on the left side in normal waking consciousness, most of us have a sense of separateness that I, my sense of ego, uh, ego is just Latin for I, right? It's the first person singular pronoun. Uh, My sense of self or ego is here, and you or the world are out there. But if we begin to move across the chart to the right, even just a simple spiritual practice like mindfulness, paying close attention in real time to minute aspects of our direct experience. If I were doing mindfulness, I might just note all the different things, you know, tingling, pressure, breathing, hearing, seeing, kind of breaking down the aspects of our experience. If we keep practicing mindfulness, part of what you begin to notice and for yourself directly is that the border between ourself and the world is quite a bit more porous and vibratory and in a constant sense of flow than we sometimes notice when, we, when we're being mindless instead of mindful. Uh, Continuing along, many people have also experienced a sense of overlap between self and the world in what are sometimes called flow states, uh, while participating in an activity that you find particularly absorbing. This is different for different ones of us. Some of you may have experienced this happening when you're really caught up in playing a sport. You're just kind of in the zone, in the flow. For others of you, you may have experienced it while gardening 
while creating art, while reading, while playing a musical instrument, or maybe just really being immersed in a crowd at a concert. You just sort of were in the zone, in the flow, in the moment. Notice that word even absorbing. It, your sense of self is loosening into a flow state. We have more of a sense, as, as the Zen tradition would say, you're, you're just playing. You're just being. You're just doing. You're just creating, or creativity is channeling through you. Uh, you may have also noticed this sort of dropping of self uh, through a sense of awe. Have you ever suddenly turned a corner and seen something so breathtakingly beautiful that, or mind-blowingly amazing that even just for an instant, it lifted you out of your sense of self? Have you ever seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Uh, so when I was in Jordan and we came through, turned that corner and saw the, the real temple, I mean, it was just like, I was just... <laughs> Incredible. Uh, or I can think about, I was hiking on the Pacific Coast Trail uh, in Oregon, Pacific Crest Trail, and I got up to use the bathroom in the middle of the night. And instead of seeing like 27 stars like we see here, I saw like 27,000 stars. I almost fell over. Yeah. You know, it was so amazing. Uh, or uh, about quite a few years ago, I was in Egypt, and uh, this was an amazing six-week trip, and it, this was day one at Giza, and it was all downhill from there. We saw all this incredible stuff, and like nothing blew my mind, like these fourth, and if you can see, do you see how little the humans are? To really be there and see how each block dwarfs a human, it's just incredible, and that was done 4,000 years ago, problematically through slave labor, but you know, uh, incredible nonetheless. Uh, or when I remember being in, haven't you been to the Sistine Chapel in, in Italy? Uh, just being there and seeing that uh, and then exiting and they're, they're trying to sell you like books and postcards. And I felt like this is a Shonda. Like this is like, this is heresy that you are trying to sell me a postcard. Like this postcard, you should burn this because it is just nothing compared to this in person. Like I just, it felt insulting to see that. I was just like, it's ridiculous. Uh, but these experiences can just call, absorb us into something larger than ourselves. Again, you can kind of see the scale of the people and one dude did that, like what? Um, as we continue, I would be remiss if I shied away from naming that another significant common example of peak experiences for people is sexual climax, if you will. Uh, it, there's a reason the French call it la petite mort, the, the little death, right? The little death of our ego, a temporary releasing of the sense of self into a more immediate and direct experience, sometimes accompanied by a sense of merging with another person. Now, as we get to the right-hand side of the chart toward full-blown mystical experiences, I don't want us to miss that whether or not you've had the sort of fully non-dual experience, you likely have experienced various points on this continuum. So you, you probably have somewhat of a sense of what this is about, uh, some sense of merging of the self and the world that can be profound in its own right. Uh, so William James was on to something when he urged scholars to focus on these sort of peak spiritual experiences. People throughout history have often counted such experiences as among or the most meaningful experiences of their life. And a recent Gallup poll reported that well over 30% of contemporary Americans report having had some sort of peak unitive mystical experience. So for those of you who are mysticism curious, uh, let me say a little bit about how these experiences are cultivated. After all, the first part of our mission statement here at UUCF is to, we gather to encourage spiritual growth. 
Two major paths towards a mystical experience. One is more ecstatic, and one is more quiet or contemplative. There are many examples I could give from the world's religions, but let's keep our focus close to home. I find it fascinating that our two largest spirituality groups here at UUCF, our UU pagan group and our UU Buddhist group, represent classic examples of these two poles on the mystical path. The pagan tradition, of course, has many quiet, contemplative components, but the pagan experience, the tradition, also has an expertise in cultivating ecstatic, self-transcendent experiences of mystical rapture. Imagine a drum circle at night and a group inviting you to dance with abandon around a bonfire. Can you imagine your sense of self dropping away a little, if only for a while, as you let go into an ecstatic group experience? Or again, some of you may have had this at a concert. Uh, or on the other end of the spectrum, our UU Buddhist Sangha regularly offers time and space in which you can deeply touch in to inner tranquility. You, know, you don't have to believe everything you think. You can just touch into that inner tranquility. Or some of you may experience a similar taste of self-transcendence doing yoga. And particularly, if you've ever done like an intense, hour-long yoga practice, you're invited at the end to lay back in Shavasana, right, in corpse pose, Again, where you're sort of invited to see, like, uh, experience a little bit of ego death. And you may have felt a sense of yourself melting away a little into the ground, if only for a, a few moments, allowing you to experience just being. Nothing to do. Nowhere to go. Over time, one goal of long-term spiritual practice is to make this experience more permanent, right? Practice doesn't necessarily make perfect, but it makes more permanent. Uh, so that one's normal flips from the left-hand side to the right-hand side of this chart. Instead of one's default experience being a separate ego, the new normal becomes a deep sense of interdependence and connectedness with all of reality. From Hindu Avaita Vedanta to Buddhist enlightenment to Jewish Kabbalah to Christian contemplation to Islamic Sufism, uh, the spiritual sages throughout the millennia have been pointing to the human potential to transcend ego and to actually directly experience oneness. As the Buddhist monk said to the hot dog vendor, right? Make me one with everything, right? <laughs> In the spirit of William James, I'm fascinated by researchers applying the tools of modern science to help us better understand spirituality. And I would be remiss if I neglected to invite us to at least briefly explore that one major component of what scientists are studying at Johns Hopkins and a growing number of other research centers around the world is the way that psychedelics can give a glimpse of mystical experiences. And although it often takes a serious commitment to spiritual practice to have a long-term permanent state change to flip that normal, even a brief glimpse from psychedelics can be a powerful motivation to continue along the spiritual path to see there really is a there there. Arguably, no one in recent years has done more to raise the public awareness about the potential benefits of psychedelics, not that there aren't problems as well, is Michael Pollan. How many of you read this book, How to Change Your Mind? All right, quite a few hands out there. Uh, what the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Depression, and Transcendence. Really interesting book, but it's pretty long. If you don't have time to read it, uh, it's recently turned into a Netflix series of the same name, How to Change Your Mind. Uh, to be clear, psychedelics are powerful substances. They are not to be trifled with lightly. They're illegal, uh, you know, unless you're doing them at Hopkins or somewhere where they're either working on making them more legal in, in certain circumstances. Indeed, ego dissolution, ego death, 
absorption into flow states, difficult experiences, including trauma, you know, arising that have been repressed uh, from the deep recesses of your consciousness. That can all be scary to navigate, but it turns out maybe it's better than just keeping it repressed. Uh, it makes it more workable. And as Pollan's subtitle uh, points out, these experiences can also teach us a lot about consciousness, about dying, about addiction, about depression, about transcendence, and more. Regarding the aspects of reality that psychedelics can give us a glimpse of and what committed spiritual practice can give us a more permanent um, sense of, uh, Chogun Trumpa Rinpoche, who brought Tibetan Buddhism to the West, he used to say, the bad news is that we're in free fall and we don't have a parachute. The good news is there is no ground. It's just flow and impermanence and process and interdependence all the way down. We are not separate from one another. It is interdependent co-arising is the nature of reality. What spiritual sages have been teaching for millennia, what scientists are increasingly discovering empirically, is that at the deeper, deepest levels of consciousness, we have never been separate from one another. We are much more deeply connected than we're often uh, able to sense. We're deeply interdependent. Dr. King put it this way about how this insight can save our lives. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. We are tied in a single garment of destiny. We can't get away from each other. We're too interdependent from that. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. It is one thing to think that that is a lovely and noble idea. It is quite another when a spiritual experience gives you a felt existential realization of that reality that you can live out of. It's like in the Christian tradition, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. That can feel like a burden if you feel separate from your neighbor, but the Christian mystical tradition has always contended we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves when you deeply realize through unitive spiritual experience your neighbor is yourself. That's how you love your neighbor as yourself. What's... Um, uh, or is the profound piece of indigenous wisdom states, a profound piece of indigenous wisdom states, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. If you're separate from me and you want to deign to help me. But if you have come to work because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Truly realizing our interdependence at a deep existential level can make all the difference in the world. And I'm grateful to be on this journey of spiritual growth and exploration together with all of you. Holding all that potential of interdependence in our heart, let's rise, embody your spirit. Let's turn to hymn 1053. We'll sing it through twice. How could anyone? 